Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Fifteen years ago, Debbie Block was diagnosed with brain cancer. Remarkably, to this day, she retains most of her mental capacities, but by the end of 2008, Debbie's condition had deteriorated to the point where her husband Jeff felt she was no longer safe on her own, and he became his wife's 24-7, 365 caregiver. In 2011, Jeff wrote a book titled Nine Years After about his experience of caring for his wife, who, since her diagnosis, has fallen well over a thousand times and is physically unable to walk safely without support. Jeff Block joins us today from the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. Jeff, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Jenna. Tell our listeners where exactly you live in North Carolina and how you ended up there. I live in Watauga County which is in the northwest corner of the state of North Carolina. Uh, The nearest town that folks may have heard of would be Boone, North Carolina, which is the home of Appalachian State University. Mm -hmm. We've got lots of small towns here, Boone, Banner Elk, Blowing Rock. Um. They all sound so appealing, and they really (laughs) are. People should come visit here. It's beautiful. (laughs) So how, how did you guys end up there? I moved here back in 1977. Mm -hmm. I was married to my first wife at the time, and I grew up in New York City in Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. and I had married there back in 1975. Mm -hmm. Now, my first wife wished to take a master's degree, and I agreed with her that I would support her through her studies. Uh, The only thing I asked of her is that we leave the city. It, mm-hmm. it was important for me to leave the city. I'm glad I grew up there. I had opportunities that I never would have had otherwise. But it reached a point where I was tired of spending an hour and a half every day to just park my car. Uh-huh. Uh, I wanted to move. My first wife agreed that we would look around the country at various colleges where she was accepted. We came through Boone for the first time on a spring day in April, and it was just beautiful. I was able to immediately turn to her even before she went to the offices of the university and tell her this was the place. We continued here for a few years. My my first wife did achieve her master's degree and went back to New York City. There were issues involved in our marriage that Mm -hmm. things happen when people marry young. And so she went on back to New York City, and I decided to remain here. And that's how I got here. Now, Debbie and I met back in the early 1980s, and we have talked about this numerous times, about exactly where and what day we met. We're not sure. The only thing that I do know for certain is that it involved people partying on the eve of a Grateful Dead concert. (laughs) 
Okay. Um, that's the only thing that we both agree on, that we met at a big party of folks who were all getting ready to go to a show. <laughs> and over the years, Debbie lived in Raleigh, which is about 200 miles east of where I live here in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And over the years, we would meet at concerts mm-hmm. and then go back home to our respective lives, whatever they were at the time. Mm-hmm. And finally, we understood that it was just silly for us to only see each other at concerts, and we finally began dating, and we were married in 1996. Okay. So tell us what happened that led to Debbie's diagnosis. The timing of it all is pretty crazy. We had been married for five years, and we were celebrating our fifth wedding anniversary, and we were doing so by spending a weekend at a mountain cabin about 100 miles south of here. We just decided to go someplace away from home to celebrate that anniversary weekend. And on the morning after our anniversary, and we're talking 2001 now is when all this takes place, Mm -hmm. the morning after our anniversary, September 1st, 2001, we woke up in this rental cabin that we were staying at. We were having coffee. I went to go sit in the hot tub. Debbie was waiting on the porch and and drinking coffee when I I heard this noise that I couldn't really explain, and I looked towards her, and she was in the midst of a full-blown seizure. She had never had any kind of issues before. She had never had any kind of seizure before, and coincidentally, she's never had one since either. Oh, wow. And uh, how old was she at this point, and how old were you? So that would have been 2001. I'm 62 now, so I would have been 47 then, and Debbie would have been 46. Okay. I called the ambulance, of course, and they came finally and took us to the nearest hospital where they performed a CAT scan. And within minutes, one of the nurses came out and told me that they had discovered a tumor inside Debbie's head that they had already adjusted the scheduling, whatever, the the, the setup to have us transferred to another hospital where a neurologist and a neurosurgeon were waiting. And basically on the 2nd of September, the very next morning, they did brain surgery on Debbie and removed the tumor from her head, which was at that time about two and a half inches large. Oh, my gosh. They removed the tumor. It was quite a scene, actually, because we were not at home. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, right. And so we didn't have our stuff. I didn't have any phone numbers with me of people to call or anything like that. We were fortunate in that the place where they transferred Debbie to was located in Asheville, North Carolina. And we do know a bunch of folks who live down that way. And so I was able to access some folks to give me a place to sleep that night Mm, Um, to help me to retrieve my vehicle and the other things I had left at the cabin when I rode in the ambulance with Debbie to the hospital. Wow. When we arrived at that first hospital, they asked me for identification and Debbie's insurance cards and so on and so forth. I had left my wallet and everything back at that cabin. So they didn't think that Debbie had insurance, although she did. And that may or may not have played into the fact that four days after her brain surgery, they sent her home. Oh, Um, how so? I'm not sure I follow you there. I I honestly don't know what happened there, to be honest. And Mm. I was glad to be able to go home. 
<laughs> yeah. So we think that if they had realized that Debbie had full insurance at the time, they probably would have kept it the month or two that they had first told me that it would take. Uh-huh. You know, when the neurosurgeon explained to me what the surgery was going to be and what we should expect, he told me to expect a month or two of hospital rehab. That never happened. Uh, they sent her home after four days. Now, that brings us to the 6th or 7th of September, one They had made an appointment for us on the 10th of September to visit with the neurosurgeon and to get the results of the biopsy that was done on the tumor. Mm-hmm. And it was on the 10th of September that we were told that Debbie does have brain cancer. She has a stage 3 form of cancer. It's called an anaplastic astrocytoma. And that, you know, we would have to continue to, to deal with that. And that next year, of course, was a whole blur of chemo and radiation as they tried aggressively to deal with this, you know, the onset of the tumor. So it kind of corresponds to the craziness of, of what happened in our country because the day after we received Debbie's cancer diagnosis was 9-11. Right. Oh, gosh. So all of that kind of combines in in my life that that week, you know, Mm -hmm. totally changed not only our lives personally, but the lives of the country, too. Yeah. Uh, So when she got home after those four days in the hospital, did she have any rehab in the home? No. We were just sent home. I had called Deb's mom and, you know, informed our families of what was going on. And Deb's mother chose to come up and stay with us for a few days, and she did. Through the diagnosis, she went with us to speak with the neurosurgeon, and she stayed about a week after we had received that diagnosis, so she she was able to help out that first week. Uh-huh. But after that, we've been on our own. Did you want services, or were you in such a blurred state and so overwhelmed that you thought it's not going to make a difference, or what? Well, that first year, there wasn't really an issue of caregiving services. It was more an issue of just dealing with the medical reality that it jumped upon us. Um, So it was just basically following the doctor's orders. Right, okay. <laughs> this is, this so they is gave what you some we orders. do okay. to try to cure this. Right. Okay. Uh-huh. So Debbie did undergo chemo. Uh, she was fortunate in her chemo that she did not have to do the IV and the drip chemo. Uh-huh. She was able to do an oral form of chemo. And that was, there was a lot of interesting back and forth between our doctor and the insurance companies at that time, too, because of the nature of brain cancer. It's a, it's a specific type of cancer, and I'm not a doctor, so I can't really necessarily explain all this stuff fantastically, mm-hmm. but I can repeat what I've been told. There is a, apparently a, a body-brain barrier, which makes it difficult for drugs that could be used in other parts of the body to be used on brain cancer. So there has to be specific ones needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that those were the oral ones that the doctors finally decided on. They gave her a, a combination of different chemos that one month she would do one type of drug, the next month she would do a different type of drug. And like with most chemo, the the side effects are similar. There's a lot of vomiting, yeah. a lot of nausea, 
inability to eat and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, because of Debbie's overall good health, she was able to get through that first year with pretty good success. Mm -hmm. In fact, she returned to work that coming March. In March 2002, Debbie returned to full-time work. Wow. And that says a lot because she worked as a landscaper. She was a landscape supervisor for one of our country clubs up here. Uh She was responsible for like over 200 flower beds and such. Uh And she had a crew that she maintained and all that. So what the work she did was physical. Yeah. And so she went back to that. Sitting at a desk. She went back to work at that coming March. Uh Uh-huh. 2002. And and, and even through that, uh, she was still taking RAD treatments. You said she was taking what treatments? Uh, RAD, radiations. Oh, radiation treatments. Okay. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Radiation treatments. And she was still on chemo up until about June of that year, too. So that was basically 2001 into 2002. Mm -hmm. And 2002, we had a fairly good year. It was almost seemingly normal. Uh We were both continuing our jobs and working and so on. Mm -hmm. And everything was kind of okay. Now, in the spring of 2003, one of the monitoring MRIs showed a regrowth of of tumor. A regrowth of the tumor. A regrowth of the tumor, Mm. right. Debbie's cancer, in a lot of ways, is a fortunate one to have because it's not a level four. This was level four, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And the other thing about her tumor is it is specific to the area in which it was found. It does not metastasize. Oh, okay. Interesting. So she's very fortunate in that it makes the monitoring of her tumor relatively easy. Basic MRI. And they're able to distinguish what is going on there. So in 2003, her MRI showed that there was a regrowth. Mm-hmm. And the doctors at the time that we were seeing was still the neurosurgeon who had done the original surgery. And he recommended a procedure called stereotactic radiosurgery. And basically what that is is a intense blast of radiation directly upon the tumor site. And that was performed in 2003. And for 2003 and 2004, we were kind of okay. But towards around the end of 05, Debbie began to show significant physical deficiencies. Hmm. She became unbalanced. She began to fall. She had problems walking. All kinds of issues were going on. And the MRIs weren't completely able to determine what was happening. Mm-hmm. There was something going on inside Debbie's brain, but nobody knew. Mm-hmm. There's a joke in there somewhere, but I was <laughs> too hard. Okay. Um, <laughs> basically, what they found out was what was going on through a number of biopsies that had to be performed. They found that what was going on inside the head was that because of the extra burst of RADs, there was scar tissue within the brain, mm. and the scar tissue was, was growing and was overpowering the brain itself. Wow. Necrosis would be the, the official medical word. There was necrosis inside Debbie's brain, dead tissue that mm-hmm. was growing. They had to find a way to halt that. And so in, in the winter of 2006, 
Debbie undergoed or underwent 90 procedures of hyperbaric treatment. 90? 90, three wow. months worth. And basically what that entails, hyperbaric, is when they put somebody in a pressure chamber. I see. The, the most common usage that people would be familiar would be a diver rising up with the bends, and mm-hmm. they need to get the pressure down to, to save that, that diver. This was the same kind of thing. They put her into a pressure chamber, they pumped it full of oxygen, and the extra pressure forced that oxygen into the brain and basically began to heal all of those small micro-cuts that had been taking place inside her head. Wow. They did that through the spring of 06. By the summer of 06, the MRIs were showing that the necrosis was forming again. They did 90 more of the hyperbaric treatments. And those were actually kind of a hassle because there is no hyperbaric facility anywhere near where we live. So there, there were some issues involved in having Debbie stay somewhere for a few months. Did receive some support from Debbie's brother and from one of our nieces and nephews who allowed Debbie to stay. And so that was a difficult time, 06. Debbie was alone for most of the week. I would go visit on the weekends. How did she get to the appointments? She was was transported through Red Cross volunteers. Oh, wow. And did you coordinate that? Yes, we had to. Uh There was even an issue at one time because at first... She was staying at her brother's, and her brother lived just about less than a mile across the North Carolina-South Carolina line. He Mm -hmm. lived in South Carolina, and none of the transport people could logistically cross the state line. Insurance and so forth precluded them from making that transfer. And even though it was less than a mile over the border, they just wouldn't cross it. Um, So we had to then move her to one of our nephews and nieces who were within the North Carolina line right? and were willing to have Debbie stay in their home for about a month and a half, two months there. Oh, gosh. We appreciated that, certainly at the time, and I still do. Mm-hmm. And then come the end of 06, the MRIs and such all began to show that the necrosis was receding, but the physical damage had been done. I see. So ever since 06 until even this morning, there's been a steady and slow and gradual deterioration of Debbie's abilities. Mm-hmm. Nothing so fast that if you see her once a month, you don't necessarily notice. But if you only see her every couple of years, you notice that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and that brings us to, to where we are right now, kind of, sort of. Mm-hmm. I was still trying to maintain my position, you know, my position at work. Mm-hmm. I was a school teacher. I was working in a school. It was a, a special group of children who had been adjudicated by the courts as sex offenders. Hmm. This was a special school serving those children because they were under juvenile care. They weren't allowed to go to public schools. They needed to be maintained in a secure facility. Hmm. And so I, I went into that school and I taught there. Hmm. I was trying to maintain that position, but as 06 and 07 progressed, it became more and more often that I'd come home to find Debbie in a very unsafe place. Mm-hmm. You know, if she had only fallen on the floor and remained on the floor, 
that wasn't so bad, but sometimes she tried to walk out of the house and do a little gardening or something like that on her own, and I would find her half rolled down a hill and sometimes at the ledge of a of a drop off. Oh my gosh. That had she fallen there would have been disastrous. Oh, it must have been terrifying um, for you. It was and it put me into that position of having to realize I couldn't continue to work. Yeah. I couldn't safely leave her in the house. I would come home and find the burners on the stove still on and a you know, some pot of water that had boiled all the way down or whatever. Right. You know, it the safety issues became overwhelming. So I did have to leave work, and that happened around the end of 08. I finally made the decision that I had to leave work. It just had to be done. Did and you ever since then, I have been a full-time caregiver. And did she qualify for any sort of disability insurance or payments? Yes. In retrospect, I wish I had applied for Debbie's disability immediately, because something that most folks don't know, that is even after you apply, there's still a two-year waiting period. Right. Now, that two-year waiting period, I finally did apply for Debbie around the end of 05 when it was clear that the hyperbarics weren't really going to return her physical abilities. Mm-hmm. So I did apply towards the end of 05, and at that point, the end of 05, Debbie stopped working. Now, there was a problem already because what had happened was Debbie was working, She did have insurance through her employer. But after the first year, or whatever the end of that first calendar year was, Mm -hmm. Debbie's employer's insurance refused to continue to carry her. Oh, gosh. And so we were forced to go on to the COBRA program. Mm -hmm. And so for those last two years that I was working, 06 and 07, and through the beginning of 08, Debbie was having to pay COBRA payments just to maintain our ability to have her receive MRIs and stuff. At the end of the month, I was taking home less than $100 a month. After two years, Debbie's disability did kick in. Thank God. Once her disability kicked in, then she also automatically became eligible for Medicare. So at that point, we were pretty much okay. I was concerned those first several months that I wasn't working because I didn't really know if the disability payment would be enough for us to live on. Fortunately, we were very wise in that we had paid double and triple mortgage payments for years and our house had been paid off. So I don't know how we would have made it otherwise. So let's talk about your book. Um, What does the title of your book, Nine Years After, refer to? And talk a little bit about how writing the book has affected you. The title, first of all, Nine Years After, refers to the fact that it was nine years after we were told that Debbie had brain cancer that I first began to write. Okay. And the title did not come about first. In fact, the thought of a book didn't even come about until I'd written about 80 pages. Hmm. (laughs) The way it went down is that one morning I just sat down at the computer and started to just type. I didn't really know what I was doing or why. I just began to type. You mentioned that you have looked at at, at part of the book. Chapter one is pretty much that first day that I wrote, untouched. Chapter one Hmm. pretty much went pretty clean, straight through. That's what I wrote one morning. It sat on the computer for a half a year at least. 
Hmm. I never thought about it, never looked at it again. About a half year later, the depression of having such quiet mornings, allowing Debbie to sleep the 14, 15, 16, or 17 hours that she normally does, Hmm. I I went back to my writing, Hmm. and I I started to just add to it. (laughs) Right. Uh, I had no thought that there was going to be a book in the future, but I just started to spend my mornings writing and, and adding to it. Once I realized that what I had was becoming a book, first of all, I was impressed. <laughs> uh, I went, how the hell did I do that? Uh, <laughs> but uh, It's very at that well written. Point, very well written. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. At that point, I did go back and outline the important events that I wanted to have included. Uh-huh. And so at that point, I did start to move certain things around that I might have written that were out of time frame. And, uh-huh. and I tried to, to tell our story in a real time. But it was that first morning of sitting down and just writing out of just pure depression <laughs> is what yeah. started it. So it and, was and, like therapy for you, sounds like. Uh, well. Yes, no? Or just... Yeah, it was a way to spend time. Uh-huh. I understand when people ask me, was it therapeutic for me? Did it make me feel better? Did it change my life? No, no, and no. It didn't do any of those things, hmm. but it did take up some time. I see. And you had a lot um, of time to kill. <laughs> I had a lot of time on my hands. That's right. I did indeed. So I am actually really proud of Nine Years After, and the comments I've heard from people who've actually read it have all been positive. Uh, and the way I guess it changed my life is that once I realized I was telling our story, I became very concerned with telling our story in the most truthful and honest fashion possible. And so ever since that writing, I've tried to be that person to discuss things in the most honest and sincere way that I can. I'm a fun person. I like to joke. I like to tease people. I like to have fun. But when it gets down to talking about real issues, I want to talk about them. I don't want to, I don't want to scoff them off. I, mm-hmm. I want to be honest about the way things are. So that's how the book changed me. It, it made me be more honest. And you wrote, actually, I think it's the first line in the book. For me, it is the mornings that are the absolute worst. You talk about the hateful pressure of silence. Can yeah. you elaborate on that? Well, one of the things involved in, in Debbie's illness is that she seems to feel the need to spend many, many hours laying in the bed. This is an issue that we've addressed with the doctors, and the doctors have all spoken to Debbie about, you know, that there's only so much sleep a person can get, and after a while it just becomes a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a stretch where I would try to wake her up, and then she'd just start falling on me all over the place those days, and so you, you begin to choose your battles. Yeah. You just say, well, if you want to lay in bed, okay, lay in bed. And so... While Debbie is sleeping, I try to be respectful of the fact that she's sleeping. I try not to to make noise. If I do watch television, uh, especially now, you're able to stream things with subtitles. And so I actually watch television in the mornings when I do watch TV. 
I'll watch with subtitles so that um, the, the sound of the TV won't disturb her. Hmm. I don't turn on the stereo. I don't listen to music. Uh, clearly, we were very musically oriented. Yeah. Uh, we both enjoyed music. We both enjoyed going to concerts together. I have a massive collection of albums and cassettes and CDs, but I just won't play them until right. Debbie's awake. Right. And so, yeah, that, that silence in the house, it becomes something that bears down upon me. And it is difficult. Yeah, I can it imagine. It is difficult to endure the hours of waiting. And so, yeah, that, that became an issue. And that actually is, as you mentioned, that those are the first sentences of the book. Uh, the mornings are the absolute worst. They still are. <laughs> and it's also her most vulnerable time as she's waking up, right? Tell us about that. Yes, it is. When Debbie first awakes, it does take a while for her to kick in those gears and to be okay to maneuver on her own. Uh -huh. uh, at this point, we've gone through the whole process of, of Debbie first standing upright without any assistance, then needing a walking stick. Mm -hmm. uh, and then needing an actual cane, and then needing a walker or a wheelchair. We're at the point now where Debbie can maneuver through the house with a walker. It's meticulous. Mm -hmm. It's difficult for me to watch. You know, she's unable to take real steps. It's as if she is a stroke victim where most of her left side is gone. Hmm. Um, you know, she's able to maintain through the house pretty easily where the floor is level. But even just stepping outside of our door to walk across our driveway to get to the car where, the, where it's ground and gravel and it's not flat pavement. And her tendency is to dig her left toe into the ground and then she lurches forward. Her arms start to reach out. Uh, it's really a scary thing to, to see and oh, to watch. gosh. And without support, she does fall. Oh, gosh. Going back to the sleeping thing, I'm, I'm guessing you went down this road, but has she tried antidepressants, or has that been just not even an option because of her brain cancer? No, we actually did go, and for, I would say that for about, now we're 15 years in now. Right. And I would say that for about the first nine or ten of those years, Debbie was on antidepressants. What changed that was that we used to have a dog, and our dog passed. And a couple days after our dog passed away, Debbie said something to me along the lines of, she just doesn't feel anything. She wanted to cry about our dog, mm -hmm. and she couldn't access her emotions. And so we did wean her off of the antidepressants. Now, in the five or six years since we did that, they had her back on them again for about a year. But again, between Debbie and I, we decided that we really didn't want her on those anymore. It was taking away the lows, but it was also taking away the laughter. You know, everything's a trade-off. Now, I do have times where Debbie will burst into tears. But I also have times now where Debbie will laugh and smile. We didn't have any of those while she was on those meds. So, hmm. 
you know, it's a trade-off that every individual has to make your decision about what would you, would you rather have. Right. It is difficult. What do you guys... I want to say something about the doctors, too. I've mentioned doctors, Mm -hmm. okay? And, you know, when someone is stricken with something, you really have no choice but to listen to the doctors who are assigned to your case. And people might think, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to my regular doctor, but that's not going to really happen because you're going to be sent to a specialist Mm -hmm. who you've never met and that you have to trust. You know, we look back now and look at that stereotactic surgery that was done in 2003. That was a cutting-edge technology back then. Debbie was one of just a few thousand people in the world who'd endured that treatment. Was it successful? There's the question, because has the tumor returned since 2003? No, it has not. But did Debbie's physical abilities decrease significantly as a result of that treatment? Yes, they did. Now, when the doctors began to deal with Debbie's issues as a result of the stereotactic, they realized that they were in over their heads. And so we were transferred to another doctor and were recommended to the, to the Brain Tumor Center at Duke University. We've been working with the people at Duke ever since 2004. I am extremely happy that Debbie was sent in that direction. Hmm. We've received great care from those folks and, you know, to this day continue to see them on, on whatever basis they feel is necessary. And fortunately, at this point in time, Debbie's case really is a maintenance-type case. We just need to keep her going. Mm-hmm. What do you guys still do together that gives you joy? Ooh, we do manage to get out almost every day. Every we day, for- did you say? We try. Mm-hmm. We try. I, I will say that as this winter comes on, snow and ice will keep us locked into the house. We do live in a hollow. Our driveway is steep, and if there's snow and ice, I'm usually unable to get our vehicle up to where the door of the house is. So if there's snow and ice, I do not try to take Debbie anywhere. I can leave the car at the bottom of the driveway and get to a supermarket in an emergency or something. Mm-hmm. But if I had to take Debbie and we were stuck at the bottom of the driveway, we might as well be 100 miles from home. <laughs> well, that begs the question, what do you do in an emergency? How do you get her down there? At the, you know? uh, well, I mean, that's the thing. What is an emergency? Right. You're in maintenance mode, as you said, but still. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if there was a serious medical emergency, I would call an ambulance. Right. And are you okay leaving her alone to go get groceries and stuff? Or do, how do, you, do you have stuff delivered? How does that work? Mostly what I do is take Debbie with me into town, and I will run into the grocery store while she will wait inside the car. Normally I can do things like that. Um, I am able to still take Debbie out, and we eat lunch out once or twice a week. Mm-hmm. We are fortunate in that we have a beautiful community park within five minutes of our house. It does have a paved pathway mm-hmm. that allows Debbie to begin to walk with her wheelchair, you know, using the wheelchair as a walker, and she'll walk as much as she can around this loop trail. It's about three quarters of a mile. Uh-huh. Uh, she'll walk maybe the total of about a, a couple city blocks. 
is what okay. where her stamina is okay. right now. It's not very far, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it takes about 20 or 30 minutes for her to do that. Yeah. When she reaches the point of her not being able to walk anymore, we then use the wheelchair as a wheelchair, right. and we'll push her around the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. And so we do try to spend you know some time in the outdoors every day. Over the years, I can mark... Debbie's abilities by saying that when all of this began, Debbie was in the best shape of any woman her age in the country, probably, mm-hmm. or close to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, she she was involved in physical work. We went hiking frequently. We were able to do eight to ten mile day hikes as a matter of course. It was not a big thing. That began to scale down mm-hmm. as Debbie's issues became more and more difficult and they are scaled down now to the point where it's basically impossible for us to go anywhere unless there's pavement. Uh huh. We do live in a beautiful part of the country, as I've mentioned. The Blue Ridge Parkway is very nearby to us. We're able to go out there and stop at the overlooks and, mm-hmm. you know, we can hang out. Mm-hmm. One of the issues about taking Debbie out of the house, though, I, I can never be more than a few minutes from a restroom. Yeah. I have to be within a few minutes of a restroom. Debbie has lost some bladder control, and so we always have to, no matter what we do, we always have to make sure that we're right nearby to, to a place where Debbie can be. Yep. And that has become an issue, too, because I have to support her as she goes to the restroom. I can't trust her to go in and safely do what she has to do inside there. Mm-hmm. She needs to have someone go in there. I don't know how many of your listeners around the country are familiar with what went on in North Carolina this year, but they passed a law about how... You mean the gender-neutral bathrooms? The, the, yes, yeah. the whole the whole thing with all that and it made it an issue now for years i've been assisting debbie into restrooms i've been doing that oh i see you're going are you i'm sorry i was having a hard time following you for a moment but you were talking about how the the law in north carolina that was recently passed that that was repealed affects us right right it makes it illegal for me to take debbie into a restroom right you can't go into a (laughs) women's room to help her because you're a a male right okay right wow i didn't even think now surprisingly enough what i've done is just start taking her into the men's room (laughs) (laughs) it's very funny it's it's very strange because i have to i have to say this for years i would take debbie into a woman's room and i never received any bad comment or everybody was always so helpful they understood immediately what was going on and never thought anything of it until this year where this year i've heard many comments and got to the point where early this summer i did start taking debbie into men's rooms because it was just easier the men don't care (laughs) it's just totally insane It's, it's people that i know have good hearts but for some reason they've lost track of what compassion is Mm. I don't understand it, but I feel it. It affects you directly. It does. It does. And it's sad. Yeah. And I personally disagree with the bill, but it, it, obviously that wasn't even the, uh, probably not even a thought when that bill oh, no, was crafted. No, right. <laughs> it was just an actual, a, a side thing that became an that, issue for a Debbie consequence. and I. Yeah. That, that was never considered. Right. Yeah, it was never considered. Never even considered. Hmm. 
Well, in terms of accessing services, I know especially that, you know, access to home health services for rural residents is a growing problem, especially, you know, with our nation rapidly aging. You talked a little bit about some specific challenges of living in a rural area, and you would call an ambulance if there was a a real emergency. How close is the nearest hospital? About a 15-minute ride, 15, 20-minute ride. Okay. And And what kind of support do you wish you had that you're not getting? Uh, I really wish that I was able to access respite, a true respite where I could take a night or two off. Is it because it's not available or you guys can't afford it or what? A combination of both. Of course, money would cure all issues. On that level anyway, right? Yeah. I I mean, it wouldn't be hard to access respite nights for Debbie if we were able to afford $250 a night. Is that what it is, $250 a night? It varies depending upon whichever nursing home you speak with. And there is a, I don't want to be unfair, but I do want, as I mentioned earlier, I want to be brutally honest. Please do. There is a foundation up here called the High Country Caregivers Foundation. And it is run by one of the social work agencies here in in the high country. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a combination of counties that have combined to try to, provide services. Mm -hmm. And one of the services they provide is to give a grant to caregivers to be used at local nursing homes to provide respite. And Debbie and I became part of this organization back when I wrote Nine Years After. Mm -hmm. I was asked to speak at one of their affairs and to read from my book and that went over very well and of course that that was all great now there's been no issue about us qualifying for the grant it's clear that debbie's in need of care anybody who looks at her it's obvious that she needs care we do have this grant now for a number of years we were accepting the grant but not using it because debbie's brother was always gracious enough that if I needed to have a couple days off, he was able to care for Debbie for a few days. And so for a number of years, we were able to access Debbie's brother, Hmm. but he passed. And Hmm. when he passed, there was no longer anybody within several hundred miles who was able to, to assist from family. And so that put us having to need those respite grants. Right. Okay. We were able to access a couple nights of respite a few years ago, but apparently the nursing homes and the foundation had a contract price of what the nursing homes would accept from the foundation to care for someone in need. And that price was $75 per night. And so the grant, in effect, allowed me to take one day per month. What was the amount of the grant? $500. Per month for six months sorry for six months for six months five hundred dollars for six months wow that's not very much money for six months worth of care no it's not it what it it, what you know 75 into five right six times with a couple bucks left over right Uh, i was able to combine those nights you know i didn't have to use them one per month i could save them up and use two at a time Uh or so on so Uh forth and there were a couple times where i took two or three day weekends now, what happened, unfortunately, and because we live in a rural area, there's only so many nursing homes around, what would happen is that they would keep Debbie, and then they would say, well, 
Debbie really requires an awful lot of care, and we can't do this at $75 a month. We have to jack it up to 250 Okay. And so now she was that, actually physically, sorry to interrupt, but just to, she was physically going to the nursing homes? That's how you were yes. getting? Okay. Okay. Yes. Got I, it. Would, I would drive her to the nursing home. Okay. She would have to stay. We would have to do all of the paperwork necessary mm-hmm. for her to be admitted into mm-hmm. the nursing home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She would have to go through all of the different vaccinations and all of the, you know, the, the, the stack of paperwork that I had to fill out was over 50 pages. Oh, my God. And, of yeah. course, most of it was repetitive. Mm-hmm. How many times do you need to have her name, address, and Social Security number on a piece of paper? <laughs> um, but, unfortunately, because after they would keep her, they would say, well, you know, she does require all this extra care. And now I, I'm going, okay, I get that. <laughs> right. I get that she requires extra care. Right. I, I get right. That Don't you love it when people tell you things you already know? <laughs> yeah. You know, all that they're really telling me is that I'm doing the job of 50 people and <laughs> right. I'm not getting paid a dime. Right. Right. <laughs> I'm well aware. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. I, I, it'd be cool if I was getting $75 a night. Yeah. You know, sure. so that I, so that when all of this ends, which unfortunately we all know it's going to end, mm-hmm. it's not going to be a happy ending. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I'm, I'm trying to, it's hard to be in this situation and not think about, well, what happens to me when Debbie passes? Mm-hmm. And so... You know, I don't. I don't know the answer to that question either. <laughs> it's too bad that grant money couldn't be used for private duty care. For instance, hiring somebody to right, come in. Right. I mean, Unfortunately, the, the restriction no, on the grant is contract. It's restrictive. So, that, and that's really the only thing that's even been offered to us at all. Wow. Uh, in terms of respite, that's the only thing that has been offered to us at all. Well, now, for many years, we fell into the cracks. Mm-hmm. Because Debbie was stricken early in life, she didn't qualify for things that now that she's over 60, she does qualify for. Such as? Such as there is now a home aide who does come once a week for three hours and gives me an afternoon, basically a a three-hour break once a week. Mm Mm-hmm. That's we it. do receive that now. Um, that didn't start until this summer. We had gone quite a long time with everything kind of just maintaining, you know, going day by day. Uh, but back in March, Debbie suffered one of her bad falls where she falls backwards and hit her head. Mm-hmm. Doesn't happen often. Uh, mm-hmm. But back in March, she did suffer a pretty severe concussion. Mm-hmm. And that required a trip to the ER and at that point they diagnosed her concussion and decided to keep her for a few nights in the hospital for observation and then they did give her a couple weeks of rehab at a rehab facility. Mm-hmm. Now once Debbie was sent to the rehab that kind of kicked in all of the social workers again. Right. And so they did find that we were now eligible to have this homemade come once every week for three hours mm-hmm. um, because Debbie was now old enough to qualify for that program. It wasn't necessarily because she had another concussion, uh-huh. but it was because she now qualified because of her age. Right. So for that long stretch of time there, we really weren't covered at all 
for any kind of extra service Mm -hmm. because Debbie wasn't old enough to qualify. Right. So I'm wondering how the rest of your circle of friends have handled this over the years and how your relatives have handled this, how they've helped out or not helped out, how your Mm. life has changed in that way. You're touching on the reason why there hasn't been a sequel to Nine Years After. Okay. 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 Because the reality is, is I'm pretty upset with all of our family and friends. Now, I I, I guess I need to put all this in perspective. We do live in the middle of nowhere, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, for for people who live in either, you know, who who don't live in the mountains, they think this is the boonies, and it is. Yeah. Uh (laughs) I wouldn't have it any other way. (laughs) But we don't really have any family nearby. All of our parents are gone at this point. Debbie's family, they are all in Florida. Most of my family is still in New York, New Jersey area. And so there's nobody close enough to really call upon. In terms of friends, I'd like to say we have many friends, but the reality is that as we are becoming more and more unable to take part in social activities, we've kind of gotten lost in the shuffle. Mm-hmm. We have some friends who still call. Now, part of this is, you know, we've also in the last 15, 20 years witnessed the digital revolution. Communication has changed. Right now, communication with friends is pretty much limited to Facebook posts, Uh stuff like that. Well, you know, and you made the choice to stay where you live, for whatever that's worth. You want to stay where in your home. Everybody wants to, if you like where you live, you don't want to move, right? So, and you just happen to live, as you said, in the boonies. So it makes it difficult. It's one of those trade-offs, right? Well, it's more than that at this point, because uh-huh. at this point, uh, even if we wish to move, we probably couldn't afford to. Uh huh. The value of our house would not purchase a new house. Uh huh. Was there a point right. at which you thought this is going to get worse? Maybe we should think about leaving. I don't know. Those are really hard conversations and thoughts amidst the chaos of everything else that you're trying to deal with. Yeah, it's it's a difficult thing. For the most part, we're happy where we are. It sounds you know, beautiful. Moving wouldn't really solve anything. That's part of the issue too. I mean, there's really no reason for us to just move just for the sake of moving. Because you still have access to services. Right. And the reality is it's hard because, you know, you look at what's offered in service and it's not the fact that we live in a rural area doesn't mean that we don't have access to a hospital or to doctors or to any of that. We do. And we're fortunate in that the county that we do live in is a relatively progressive county considering Mm -hmm. that it is in the south Mm -hmm. but i am very concerned about my own medical health insurance at this point Mm -hmm. i did go a couple years without being covered at all and then the affordable care act did make it possible for me to receive health insurance these last two years Mm -hmm. i'm concerned about whether or not that will continue into the next couple years or how that's going to all shake down there's reality there that that i don't i just don't know how it's going to happen well you're getting close to medicare eligibility you're 62 right you said i am 62 (laughs) yes and and debbie is 61 debbie is 61 she will turn in february and 
common March. Okay. Well, I may have asked you this before, Jeff. We get older this winter. <laughs> <laughs> Up until then, we're young. <laughs> so how, how have you changed over the years, do you think, since you've uh, had to deal with this? I'm frustrated. I'm depressed. Mm. I'm sad. Mm. And I'm angry. I don't really like being any of those things, but I have to recognize that they're there. Anger has been a personal issue I've had to deal with, and and it's unfortunate. It's interesting. Debbie and I, when we do go out in public, we are pretty well noticed. People see us, and we make some kind of impression on them, whatever that impression is. We do make an impression on people when they see us, and they have to make some kind of value judgment about us, what it is we are and all that. We're walking into a restaurant, and Uh it's clear that I'm having to half-carry Debbie to a seat. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, people notice us, and, and they have to say, well, what's going on with these people? What is their deal? And they make a snap judgment based on the five seconds that they see us. They might see me helping Debbie into a bathroom and they'll go, oh, isn't he the kindest and most wonderful man could be? Or they see me telling Debbie to raise her effing foot. (laughs) And then they go, well, what a jerk off he is. And the reality is, is I'm neither. I'm neither the greatest guy nor am I a jerk-off. I'm just somebody stuck in a really bad situation and trying to do the best I can with it. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you're doing an amazing job. Uh, that's just what I'm hearing. <laughs> you know. Well, thank you. That's yeah. kind. Yeah. But again, if you saw me yelling... Right. <laughs> hey, listen, I get it. <laughs> you'd, you'd go, I'm a jerk-off. Well, And, and no. for that moment, you'd be right. Well, maybe, but I think the reality is is that people who have done any caregiving have a really different perspective when they see others doing it than people who have not been caregivers. I have noticed that. I have noticed that. And one of the the most common things when I have done readings from nine years after, one of the most common things that people mention to me is that they are glad that I admit to the anger because they recognize it in themselves. And it's something that if you're a person with a heart and you find yourself acting that way, you become incredibly guilty. You're ashamed of your own actions, and yet you still don't know how to stop them. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's called being human. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. (laughs) I guess. Oh, wow. I want to wind this down. I have a couple more questions for you, and I can't resist them because I saw them in your book, and I want to ask two questions. What is the meaning of marriage? And what's the meaning of the Grateful Dead? <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, boy. What is the meaning of marriage? Uh, you know, you marry because you're in love with somebody. You're, you're with somebody who that when you spend time with that person, you're happy, you're having fun, you're enjoying yourself, and you're enjoying the moments of your life. And when that person is stricken, your instinct is, well, let's just maintain and do the best we can. But what's happened with Debbie and I, and and I know I have to take 
you know, blame for, for my parts of all of things. I'm still here. Debbie's cared for right this very moment. If there was an issue with her waking up and she needed help, she has a whistle around her neck, and I would drop this phone and be there in a heartbeat. But she's not the person that I have fun with anymore. There's little or no real joy or happiness in my life right now. It's just this continuing, unending routine of watching someone that you really care for deteriorate and it's hard now what marriage is i hear so many people tell me that i'm doing wonderful work and that i'm a great person because so many other people would have left now i understand that because if you had told me on september 3rd 2001 that this was going to be going on and where i would be now i probably would have left but you don't because you think that you you know you think you can handle, and of mm-hmm. course you want to, mm-hmm. you want to handle it, and so you you go in with the best intentions, and and that's what marriage is is just having good intentions I guess, and following through. Amen. Now what the Grateful Dead is, they're a musical band. <laughs> what is what is the Grateful Dead? The Grateful Dead was. For me, the songs and the lyrics have become part of my personal mantras. Some people quote Bible verses, I quote Grateful Dead verses. Okay, there you go. <laughs> and, and it's the same thing, just another form of going to church. All right, amen, I like that. Do you have any last thoughts for our listeners? The biggest thing, everybody seems to worry about the finances, the finances, the finances, and all that. And I guess the only advice I can tell people is if if you have someone in your family who's stricken with a long-lasting disease, forget about paying your bills. You're never going to be able to afford to. There's no way. So just let it go. Don't pay your bills? I had to to learn the hard way. For example, okay, we'll we'll take Debbie's case. And and, and in in some ways, it is indicative of of other cancer patients because the first year that you're a cancer patient you're going to rack up well over half a million dollars in bills it's going to happen there's no way you're going to avoid it there's going to be an operation there's going to be radiation there's going to be chemo and you're going to rack up those bills and maybe you're one of the lucky people who actually has that kind of cash laying around but most people don't in my case i said okay i'll i'll try and maintain accounts with all these folks, you know, and try and pay it down. And it finally got to the point where I was working with the finance office here at our local hospital, and I probably shouldn't even say this because I don't want anybody to get in trouble. Don't name names. (laughs) But the person that I spoke with after a few years of my making payments advised me to stop. Basically told me that, that it didn't matter because every time that Debbie went in for another procedure, another MRI, or another blood test, or whatever it was, every time you go in, they create a brand new account. Mm. So I kept saying, well, why don't we just take all of these accounts, all of these different bills, whatever the grand total is, and I'll pay whatever I can afford per month to try and pay it down. Mm -hmm. And basically I was told unless I paid a certain percentage of what that total was every year, they were going to still send all of the reports to the credit agencies and all of that stuff anyway, and that there there really was no sense in giving it to the institution. Wow. Now, I know that's crazy, 
and I know that it's not the only reason why that person told me that is because over the course of years we became friendly and honest with each other. Mm-hmm. It certainly wasn't within the lines of her job to tell me that. Right, but that you know you bring up a really interesting point about the depersonalization of healthcare. And here you made this connection with somebody who, over the course of time, began to see you not as a billing code, but as someone with real struggles who was really just trying to do the right thing and having a really hard time. And over time, that barrier between her as a representative of that institution dissolved, and she said, you know what, here's just a little advice. You didn't hear this from me, right? Is probably Basically, how it came out. Yes. Right. And, yes. so, and that really speaks to a really big issue in this country with the depersonalization of care. Well, that's exactly correct. I mean, uh, if all that people see is the, the bottom line cost, then there's no way that it'll ever fly. But when people start to see each other as humans and as people in need of services when they need it, then we'll get the universal health care that should have passed back in 2002. It not 2002, I'm sorry, 2010. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I get confused with the years. They've all rolled into one. Right. There's a Grateful Dead lyric for you. I snuck it in. Wait, say that again? (laughs) (laughs) All the years combined, they roll into a dream. That's a a Grateful Dead lyric that I just kind of threw in there. Okay. Well, that sounds like a great note to end on. Jeff Block, he's the author of the memoir, Nine Years After, about his experience of caring for his wife, Debbie, which he continues to do. And guess what? Jeff also wrote a book of fiction. It's called God Knows What, the autobiography of Pope Bing I. Both books are on Amazon, and we'll have a link to Jeff's memoir, Nine Years After, on the agewise.com website. So be sure to check that out. Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate your candor. I think we can't get enough of it. Thanks for being on the show, Jeff. My pleasure, Janet. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. The AgeWise podcast is produced and edited by me, Jana Panaritis, and you can listen to the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The AgeWise podcast is also distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand network that's always on for you. And don't forget to check out our website for more amazing caregiving stories from the field. Go to agewise.com. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z or Z, as my Canadian mother says, and find out how you can be a guest on the show. Remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.